So you want to get into this? Should we should we talk about adversity? Let's do it, dude. Dive on in. <laughs> All right, man. Cool. So yeah, this one was my podcast idea, and I really wanted to talk about adversity and and how adversity affects the individual's life and and adversity I think is everywhere. So, you know, maybe we can share a few poems, maybe we can share a few stories or anecdotes. But the idea is, I think, just for me, is, is talk about how adversity can be something positive and maybe looking back and reflecting at adversity being something that, in hindsight, I maybe wish I had more of or the right type of adversity because I think it's it's helped me a lot in, in my kind of growth as an individual, Right. But I think, well, let me ask you this to get started. Do, do you think most people view adversity as something positive or something negative? I would say negative, man. Um, yeah, I would say negative because there's, I think that, you know, we have a lot of stories out there, you know, from, if you look at the lens of a lot of these stories like coming on um, Netflix or out of Hollywood or even around the world, right? They're a lot of them are really happy and everybody has a lot of material. It seems like, right? Like every TV show, you've never seen a TV show that actually takes place. Like, I mean, maybe one in a trailer where most people, you know, a lot of people in the world grow up in low income housing. A lot of people are in trailers. It never looks like what's on TV. And then, you know, there's this, the God, the idea of God, you know, and like when, when like you're demanded to have faith, yet bad things keep happening over and over again, it's hard to have faith, you know? And like I said, it's just these stories that surround us that, you know, we start to compare ourselves to. So I think that most people, and no offense, like, I think it's natural, but most people, um, yeah, I believe tend to see it in a negative light. And what about yeah. you? Do you think is it, you know, like, would you agree with that? Or do you think that a lot of people actually can use it as a tool for empowerment? Yeah, I think as humans, we have a tendency to want to keep away from anything that's painful. So adversity seems like something that is is difficult, uh, laborious, is, is problematic. So uh, I think a lot of people just want to keep away from anything that is going to cause them pain or discomfort. And I think that's normal to be human, right? Um, but I don't know if they, like what is core, I guess you have to look at what is causing the adversity and then where, you know, where is it coming from? What type of adversity is it? Uh, and then looking at from there to seeing if it's a, a good thing or a bad thing in hindsight, you know, being able to move it, move through it. So I guess, you know, what comes to mind to me is that, well, have you been in a situation where you felt like adversity has been a good thing because you've been being able to move through it or in a situation where you know you've adversity has been a real detriment and something that you haven't been able to move through and it's caused more harm uh and i wonder how often uh, you know the positives happen and when the negatives happen right so yeah my question would be is um can you think of times where adversity you're looking back in hindsight that at the time you know we were like in a horrible situation and then now looking back in hindsight, have you thought, wow, that was actually really important to my overall growth as a human being, as a man, and it's made me so much better now. I'm so glad that I experienced that. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, I wish I kind of had a, a list written out so I could address it, but at the same time, that would probably make it drag on too long. But 
Um, yeah, I would say that um, in the moment and throughout the time uh, that I experienced adversary, adversity, and I, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here or feel sorry for myself, but I, I feel personally that I've gone through a lot in, in this life. Um, and part of it, you know, like part of it was coming from a broken home, right? Like coming from a, a home without a father. Um, and I always, you know, for a long time, I just felt abandoned. Like I didn't really think abandonment. I just had all the feelings and the symptoms and psychological like reactions of abandonment. Right. And so I, I, you know, that's one financial, um, we didn't have a lot of money cause the broken home. And I ended up buying like, I was responsible for buying my own clothes from a very early age. So starting in sixth grade, uh, I had to buy all my own clothes. I had to, you know, my mom cooked a little bit, but I basically had to prepare for myself. Um, I had to do all my own laundry. You know, I didn't have what other people around me had, like all my friends, you know, their parents did their laundry. And I'm not saying that that would have been better for me, but those were the things that brought me down. Those were the, the, the fate that was the face of adversity to me was like, why am I having to do all this stuff and keep my grades up? And then as soon as I could work at the age of 14, I mean, I was waiting to work. Like that was my you know goal as a preteen bro was to get a job. I'd had a, I'd had a paper route um, for a while. And I liked that income. That was like at the age of nine or something I was doing it nine to 10, going out into the streets by myself, uh, delivering papers early in the morning. Um, and so, yeah, man, but, but when I look back on that, when I became, you know, I started living on my own at 16. So I moved out of my mom's house. I was prepared, already prepared for life as an individual, uh, you know, independent life. And it's, it, and when I think about it now, it's crazy. And I know I had emotional battles because of that, um, because of my surroundings. I looked like nothing. I looked nothing like the people around me, um, not physically, but my life, the, the construct of my life. But to this day, I feel like I am highly, you know, I'm from an early age, I was very capable of facing life and dealing with what was dealt like bills, paying my bills on time. I learned very early on that I had to take responsibility. And in a sense, that's empowerment now, you know, and today I look back at all that and I'll try to keep this short, but I do believe that it has made me uh, more passionate passionate about being a good father, like really reflective of not letting my son go through those experiences, um, hoping that he's aware that they do exist. But at the same time, I think I would like to kind of like remove that from his life. And as I, as we started this conversation, I, we were talking about me living separate from my wife. So there's been a lot of temptation for me to just jump ship from time to time because you know, I love my wife, bless her heart, but we have a lot more in common than I ever imagined. She's really hard-headed. She's very strong, like she has a strong opinion. Uh, and, and you know, things, she's going through her own adversity. You know, I think she had an idea of what life should have been, right? Like a marriage and happiness and all of this, like great life, but things didn't work out the way we had planned. Um, and, you know, I just feel that because of these hard experiences of mine, I have, it has made me a better person. It's made me much more self-reflective. Um, and I am capable of doing a lot of things with efficiency, 
like that I don't see uh, amongst other people. Um, and I, I have a small group of people surrounding me, so I'm not talking about anybody, you know, the masses. I'm talking about just the people that surround me. But yeah, I think it's made me a better person. It's made me more conscious of the situation of broken homes and want makes inspires me to try to like send a message that can help improve that for all children and all husbands and wives. Um, you know, and fighting, that's a form of adversity in itself, you know, conflict and disagreement. And I think that with patience, we can overcome those things. So yes, Stephen, to, to, to give you a direct answer, I do believe it's made me a better person. And I do see that by, if you see it, look at it correctly, or if you look at it in a positive light, you can see uh, wonders at work. Yeah, man. Thanks for that. That's, that's cool, and that's difficult, but you know, do but it's the the insights are important. I think, you know, like I really want people. If anyone listens to this podcast, to me, I want to to kind of maybe give people some tools about adversity and maybe reshape or or, or redefine how we think about adversity. And maybe it's like talking about these stories can give people a perspective, or you know, just sharing the idea like some of this adversity is really tough but if you can work through it it's it's very rewarding at the end um or what you gain the pearls of wisdom or the character growth is really important so i think you know for me i just want to share those insights with people right through our stories um but you know your story man of when you're a kid having to do all that stuff by yourself being vulnerable um having to grow up very quickly uh, having to be an adult, basically, you'd have to be very independent. All that's external conflict, man. And and that that is something that was completely thrown onto you. You know, you didn't have any choice of that, right? And I feel like there's that. And then the, it's external conflict and it's external, um, it's external adversity. And then there's also the psychological adversity that goes with that, right? So who am I as a person? And then how do I deal with how do I deal with this? And then com maybe comparing yourself with other people. Um, do you think that maybe by having those experiences, by growing up faster, by having to take responsibility quickly, like you said, that it's making you a better father, maybe more, com maybe how, how else do you think it's impacted your life in the sense of, you know, who you are as an individual? So has it impacted how you see other people, um, how you value things or what you work towards? You know, I I'm just wondering what is the effect of that of that adversity in the in the long like what deep perspective or what perspective it's given you that maybe you wouldn't have had if you didn't have that adversity oh uh, yeah I mean, like you said a lot of that was external but to be perfectly fair to everybody around me and my family a lot of it was also internal right and i think this is another way i've grown is that i i've learned um that you know, the mind is a powerful place and the way you choose to look at things truly can dictate the outcome, right? It can, it can for, it can basically predict how uh, you deal with these adversity and you could just pick up and learn from adversity, or you could go through the, the mud deep into the, and trudge through the mud and feel sorry for yourself. And I do have to be honest, I have spent a lot of time earlier on in my life feeling bad for myself, you know, and I, and I, and I see that as a, a, 
well, I don't want to say a weakness because I was young and I just didn't know. But yeah, it, it slowed me down. It slowed my personal growth down. So I believe adversity comes in, in two major forms. As you said, external, uh, the things that just happen to us, but then internal, the things we do to ourselves. And, um, you know, I've never been one to cut myself. I've never been one to hurt myself. I'm not really like that. But I, I sat mourning, you know, night nights in my room by myself thinking about how my life was so shitty and uh <laughs> for lack of a better adjective man um or uh yeah situation um and that's okay that's okay i think a lot of people are going through that and i am with you and i have the same goal with this podcast is to hopefully uh, uh provide our anybody who's listening um, a new perspective on how we can change our views and harness the power and energy and passion that goes into our, you know, emotional mindset of adversity. Uh, we, it can be used against us or it can actually be a force for our own good. And uh, that's what I'm hoping we achieve in this podcast. But I know that it is a universal feeling. Even if you grow up in a good life, uh, there's still endless adversity. And I think that that is just the way life is, right? It's adversity um, pushing back against, you know, success and happiness. And that's how the whole house is balanced, right? Um, it's just uh, the yin and the yang, man, you know, the good and the bad, it, it stacks against itself. And without one, we don't have the other. Um, so one more thing as a better person, like you're asking me how maybe it's made me a better person is that I am fully aware that all of us go through these unique phases of adversity and our perceptions are really powerful. And so I try to be kind to all people. And I try to like, especially as a teacher, because that's what I spent a lot of my life doing, right. Dealing with children is just to be patient and just to like be a good listener to hear what kind of adversity adversity they may be facing. And that then to help maybe guide them into a sunnier place, you know, because the shadows of adversity can be really dark and they can really, you know, if you have a weaker mind or, something you can turn to self-harm, right? Nobody loves me. Nobody, why it's not, what's it all for? Is life even worth it? You know, and I just hope nobody has those feelings because once you climb out of the valley, the shadows, the light is so warm and you can truly blossom out there if you can face your adversity and learn from it. Yeah, man, that's, pow that's powerful. And I think a lot of people, it's very easy to, to fall into that. I don't want to say victim mentality, but it's not victim mentality. It's genuinely feeling sorry for yourself because things have happened to you outside of your control that are hurting you. And you didn't ask for them. You didn't deserve them. They're happening to you, right? So of course that's going to hurt. And of course, you know, you should feel sorry you know, to a degree. I think you should allow yourself to feel sorry for yourself to a degree, right? To understand I'm hurting because of something else. So I don't think there's anything to be ashamed with, with anyone, or, you know, we, I think we've all experienced that. Why is this happening to me? And, you know, I think that's a part of the, maybe the process of like almost mourning in the situation and being able to, like you said, then maybe uh, the reframing that happens afterwards. So you can, you can climb out of that, that negativity, uh, that depression, and then, you know, then do a recalibration of your mind so that you can over you can begin to maybe take some control of these situations right and then do the best that you can to to mitigate them um yeah. so like 
there's there's a bunch of um I've put in here just just for fun. I say I put in in ChatGPT, ChatGPT. Um, what are some different ideologies and belief systems that most humans use um, to navigate adversity? And here is what I've got, which is interesting. So you can tell me what you think of this. Number one, it says people use Stoicism. Stoicism is an ancient Greek philosophy that emphasizes acceptance of the things we cannot control and focusing on our internal attitudes and virtues. I'm a big fan of Stoicism, love Stoicism. That's the first one. Second one it mentions, I won't go through them all in detail, is Buddhism. Buddhism is, is it talks a bit about how people move through and understand suffering and then through suffering, mind, mindfulness and and resilience. Number three is really cool. Existentialism. Existentialism is a philosophical outlook that focus on, focuses on the individual freedom, personal responsibility, and the search for meaning in life, right? So that's existentialism pretty cool because if anyone hasn't heard of that, the way I process it is, process it is um, it's kind of you have this existential crisis of like, who am I? What am I doing here? What's the purpose? I was reading this um, Camus uh, essay the other day, and it starts by saying like, it starts the opening sentence is, the only real question is, should I commit suicide or not? It's like, whoa. Um, and then it's got humanism. Uh, humanism is, is a worldview that emphasizes the inherent dignity and worth of human beings. I don't know much about humanism. Um, resilience and positive psychology. And the number six is faith and spirituality. I'm not sure if you've heard of um, logotherapy, man's search for meaning. I got into Tony Robbins when I was 18 and I was kind of going through a bit of a, a rough patch, trying to figure out my identity, who I was, conflict at home. And I listened to a lot of Tony Robbins CDs and I thought he was a genius because he had this idea of, you know, uh, it's not what happens to you, it's how you react to it. And at 18, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And it's kind of this reassessing and recalibrating, reframing of uh, adversity, negative things, conflict. Uh, and then I realized later on, he just, Tony Robbins was a genius at stealing ideas from everything else and then synthesizing them in the way that we can understand. So he, he stole the idea from Viktor Frankl of, of logotherapy, which really came from the Stoics. Um, yeah, so I think, what do you, I don't know, for me, I think Stoicism and logotherapy, like talking about this idea of it's not what happens to you, it's how you reframe it. How do, you, how do we as individuals decide to reframe difficult situations in a way that's positive? Because quite frankly, that can be complete bullshit when you are, are suffering and you're in a, a situation that you despise and something bad has happened to you, how would you tell people or advise people or give people kind of hope? And how can they kind of, you know, reframe that thing into something positive? Is that even possible? Well, yeah, I, I believe it's possible for sure. Um, um, I, I think that as long as you expect it to be a reality, um, kind of like in existentialism, it's like, it is the truth of the reality we live in. This is what we are dealt. And it's not just one of us. It's not just, you know, the the boy who has to take on the household chores and the 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 put the the clothing on his own back. It's not just that story. it's it's really everybody's story. Um, and you know, like I said, no matter how good your life is, there's still going to be an immense amount of adversity that you have to face. You know, there's health issues. 
Um, there's marriage problems, there's financial issues. You know, if you're super successful, you're always stressed about your money, right? Like, I mean, that's like, I mean, financially, I should say, I should make that clear, financially successful, um, because there's all sorts of success in life. And most of them have nothing to do with uh, money at all. But um, yeah, I, I, I before I get you know, uh, get more into it. You know, I've already, I kind of feel like I've already peeled back my skin a little bit and exposed my soul to you and the, uh, <laughs> and any listener. But as we move forward, I would like to ask you the same question though. Like, have you, uh, how has adversity maybe hindered you at points in your life and how has it enhanced your, uh, your, your skill set, your, your personality, or how has it made you better if at all? Yeah, well, I think I, I think I'll give you an answer to that I tell you how adversities harmed me more than than helped me, and maybe that. Um, and I think it's sort of parallel to your story. So when I was growing up, and I was um, around say thirteen to eighteen, that kind of adolescent age, my dad's like really strong European, very kind of uh, unintentionally uh, very dominant and verbally abusive. And it caused a lot of conflict in our house, and a lot of a lot of tension, a lot of toxicity, and a lot of um, like a lot of violence, basically a lot of verbal violence. And, and that adversity, I didn't really understand how to deal with it. So instead of being able to bond with my brothers and sisters, instead of being able to talk out issues, like my mom was a sense of support, but it really kind of broke up our family. And what it did, it pushed me away. And I developed this kind of a habit that if I didn't like someone. Or if I felt like that person was hurting me, I just just completely kind of cut them out. And it was like, you know, no hard feelings. This isn't working. I'm walking away. And that adversity, because I didn't have any guidance and because I wasn't able to reflect, it took me a long time to be able to revisit those emotional states. It took me a long time to go back and revisit that pain and that trauma um, before I could go through some healing and, you know, develop more empathy for my father and understand his point of view and the rest of my family. But I think it really caused a lot of damage and, and I just wasn't equipped with the tools to be able to move through it in a positive way. So I think with adversity, I think adversity is definitely a good thing, but it's kind of like a couple of things. Maybe it's the right amount of adversity for what you can handle. And you know, if it's too much adversity, it can crush you. Uh, so I think that kind of happened with us. It just really crushed our family instead of um, bringing us together. And I think, um, what was I going to say? Ad ad adversity crushing you. Oh, and I think you've got to be super reflective, right? So you've got to be reflective and on the sense of being proactive, being reflective, having tools. So you're not just reacting out of emotion and just, you know, because that can go on forever, right? And I think it can go on for forever and ever. So I think it's all well and good to say to people, you know, we can be stoics and we can, you know, implement thoughts of Buddha, you know, Buddhism ideology or or existentialism, but there has to be a, a realm of of control, and you sort of have to have a bit of your own dignity. So um, maybe this will lead into our poem. Like I've got a poem that read out about Tupac Shakur called "The Rose That Grew from Concrete," and in that poem, like for me, I feel like he really maybe. I think adversity for what I what I feel so far, and I, that could change in this conversation. But I feel like it only really works if it's the right amount of adversity. If it's too much adversity, as I said, it could just end up crushing, right? So um, yeah. that's that's an experience that I can share with you. 
Um, so what do you think about that in the sense of adversity can be something that can basically scar you, crush you, or leave you traumatized for years and years to come uh, unless you're able to then revisit that and then deal with it? Well, yeah, it's that whole notion of like water under the bridge, right? And um, uh, since we're talking Buddhism, you know, I always bring up a little Christianity here and there, but like, you know, there's, it, it, I, I'm not sure exactly which book it is. I believe it's in the book of Matthew, but I'm not sure. Um, he, you know, it's it's where he's going through his mission and he's starting to heal people. And there's the 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 um, the, the lame man um, who cannot walk, and he's the brother of a uh, Simon. Uh, and this boy has never been able to walk. And it's just an amazing parable where, where, where Jesus asks him, do you want to be stuck here at the fountain? And he's like, the, the, the brother's like, why would you even ask me that? He's like, and Jesus says, well, you've been sitting here for years and years. What do you want? And he's like, why are you sitting here? And he's like, because I want to get into the fountain and have my wish fulfilled, which is to get my legs back. And Jesus said, the fountain won't do anything for you. What do you want? And the guy starts getting confused. And basically, Jesus just says, pick up your mat and walk. And he basically is telling this guy that it is the way he's been thinking that has actually paralyzed him, right? It's, it's the thinking that paralyzed him. And once Jesus cracks that, that negative outlook on adversity, the man actually attempts to walk and he does. So, you know, Jesus goes through a lot of healing and a lot of it has to do with people's perceptions of their adversity and, and they're, and they're feeling sorry for themselves and all that. And, you know, I just think that's a wonderful, you know, uh, parable. And I think that that's a big part of it. It's like, yeah, adversity can be too much, but what if there was, what if you looked at adversity as a gift what if you looked at adversity as a puzzle to solve? And at the other end of the puzzle, once it's complete, you are not only liberated, you're empowered, right? You're like, wow, I did it, a success. Um, do you mind if I read a quick transcript from uh, the, the Rocky, Rocky movie where he's talking to his son? It's become a very famous speech. Uh, that I believe Sylvester Stallone himself wrote, but it's all about adversity. And his son is like walking in his shadow, right? Because Rocky Balboa is this famous guy, but um, fighter. And so he, the son is angry because he's always having to walk in the shadow. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'll start that right now. All right, here we go. So this is the transcript and it's from, um, I'm not sure which, it's the, not the newest. Yeah. Okay. It's just called Rocky Balboa. So it's, it's, it, came out in 2006 so it's pretty old but here's what he says he's talking to his son his son is yelling at him and saying how you ruined my life you're hurting my life and and then rocky finally says let me tell you something you already know the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows it's a very mean and nasty place and i don't care how tough you are it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it you, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you're hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep more moving forward. How much can you take and keep moving forward? That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get it. Get what you're worth. 
but you got to be willing to take the hits and not be pointing fingers and saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that. And that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what, no matter what happens. You're my son and you're my blood. You're the best thing that ever happened to me in life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't going to have a life. And man, that is a powerful speech because he's he's, he's spot on. You know, no one's going to, you're going to get beaten up by bullies. Your wife's going to leave you, but nothing's going to hit as hard as life, no matter what. And it's not how hard the blows are. It's how you deal with them. It's how you move forward. It's how you persevere. And if you blame other people, well, you ain't ever going to persevere. You're not going to have a life uh, that you're proud of. So I love that speech. I just wanted to throw that in there because I think a lot, you know, adversity is the cousin of perseverance, right? They are related. And uh, I don't think that, well, without perseverance and letting the water flow under the bridge, it will beat you to your knees and you'll never stand again. And uh, so pick up your mat and walk. Yeah, nice. Well said. Do you remember when Kanye West got into a lot, a lot of trouble because he said slavery was a state of mind? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, and I remember a lot of people got upset about that. But, you know, I, maybe I misunderstood, but I think what he was trying to say is that people are limited by their own belief systems and by what they think they can achieve or what they think they can't achieve. So he's saying a lot of people were um, were kind of getting pulled into race issues. A lot of people were getting pulled into um, the kind of this victim mentality or thinking that they're still in in some kind of some kind of uh, constant persecution. And I th I think is what I feel like he was saying was that uh, the the real ad ad the real ad slavery is when you're you know society or you have yourself convinced that you can't do something, right? And yeah. I think I think that's. You know, and I hope that's what he was saying because he did get into a lot of flack for that. And you know, I, I, I can't interpret it any other other way. But what do you think about people that you know, like my dad, for example? And I, there's lots of people that I've heard have this argument that people are, in, you know, you're in control of your own life. You have um, the responsibility to fix your own life. You know, if you're homeless or you're an alcoholic on the street, it's kind of your fault. Like, how many other things? like uh, can beat you down that are out of your control that you can't recover from or another way another way of asking the same question is do all people have the tools to deal with adversity and not be beat down by life you know like don't some people just not have the tools you know the to, or the perspective and the wisdom or the reflection or the help or the the mental state you know not everyone can move through adversity i i, I i'm i'm asking yeah. No, I believe that we can um, be deprived of the tools. Um, and maybe I shouldn't see be deprived because that almost sounds like I'm insinuating that it's an oppressor um, holding us down. But like you said, a lot of people, uh, it's the way they think, right? And 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 Kanye West, I, that dude's been in so much controversy, I almost don't like talking about him. But that statement that you said, well... I hope he knows what he's talking about. Like, I hope he intended what he was saying, but I, I'm not going to make a judgment on whether I believe it or not, but I am going to quote Exodus. Whereas, 
the, who we call now the Israelites. They were not the Israelites to begin with, but you have this leader, this person who is trying to give the tools to this group of people. And they're called slaves in the Bible, right? They were slaves of Egypt. But what you find out is they were also very good. They had very successful businesses. They were um, they were in higher stations than uh, a lot of people. Um, and Moses comes to bring them out of slavery, right? And they go out into the wilderness. And then eventually, with the depravity that the, that we, let's just call them the Israelites, but they were not the Israelites yet. That's not until Jacob. Um, but um, they start to turn on Moses and say, hey, we had everything. We had everything we wanted. We had wine. We had food. We had good lives. We had houses. Why did you do this to us? And they actually want to go back to Egypt. That is what they want. They want to go back to this so-called slavery um, because they prefer it over the freedom, which involves being deprived of what you previously thought was necessary and important. And so they struggle with Moses. And then I won't tell you the whole story, but basically God helps Moses convince the people otherwise. (laughs) Don't want to get into that. But like I said, you can read the Bible a million ways, and that's how I see it as literature. And I hope I don't offend anybody, like uh, any Jewish people or Christians, um, in the process. But there is one way to look at this Exodus, and it is an Exodus from mental slavery, from addiction, from uh, neglect, from you know uh, a desire for the things that aren't important. And Moses delivers them to what is important, and that is spirit. So you're saying that the Exodus is is like a metaphorical, like an allegory, right? So it's metaphorical that they leave their, their it's an Exodus of escaping something difficult, and the, the journey of that escape is di- is also quite arduous and difficult. And we, as people, have the tendency to want to go back to the comfort zone and back to what we know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and again, this is my interpretation. So I'm not trying to convince anybody that this is what it means. But one could read it this way, is that these people are grappling with a material desire with with the flesh, right? They're grappling with the flesh and the flesh is the thing that removes us from the spirit, right? It is we have flesh and spirit and the flesh is weak and it, 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 it is um desirable it wants sorry desiring it's a sensual right and a lot of these things lead to sex and then you know a desire for money and wealth and material good and you're willing to do anything for that and in that process just like many business owners today depression comes unhappiness comes the spirit is dampered and we are without the so-called our creator right and only there are we happy like Again, Jesus says that the less you have, the happier you are. He says, give it all away. And I'm not telling people to give it all away because I don't think you should, but it's a parable. It needs to be reflected on. Like, why would anybody say that? And there's a reason for it. And uh, yeah, and it goes back to Moses and Exodus, man. He got them out of that bind that they were in. And yes, it's not going to be easy because you've been grown in that soil of consumption and materialism and expectations for how your life should be. Um, and it's so hard to have change, right? We see that everywhere in the world is change is hard. And a lot of people would rather not change. They don't want to go through the adversity that it takes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. No, that's well said. And while we're talking about the Bible, I'm going to throw one at you because uh, maybe a couple oh. months ago, I read the book of Job 
And um, I was talking to another friend about it. And and, and in the story, um, basically, like I, I'm sure you know this better than I do, that um, the devil comes to God and says, oh, you know, your, your best, uh, most devoted the devotee, uh, you know, disciple, you know, um, job, you know, he only really loves you because things are going good. He only worships you because, you know, he has, he has your blessing. You know, he, the devil says to God, ah, oh, he wouldn't actually care about you and, and love you and be faithful to you, be loyal to you. If there was, you know, if there was difficult times, hard times, and then basically God takes away, um, basically destroys everything that he has from destroying his family, killing his children, and then giving him sickness and, and, um leprosy and then he's you know even job's friends are kind of condemning him saying that oh look what you've you know you must have deserved this what have you done and he's like i didn't do anything i just <laughs> i was just doing me and then god's punishing me and then uh and, and in the end um he stays loyal to god he stays faithful he begs for god's forgiveness and then god comes down and and kind of um maybe what's the word he kind of reprimands or chides them for saying you know you don't really know god's will and and basically job was forgiven and he was kind of brought back to good health and he was given a family again and an opportunity just to have more children etc um i thought that was a really powerful story about the power of of faith and how adversity can't crush the individual spirit so i thought that was really cool like what do you think about the book of job uh i I really like that book. It's short, kind. It's kind of short, um, and it's heartbreaking. <laughs> it's, it is one that will make, that will challenge faith for sure. Um, but there is a purpose to that book, and as you can see, uh, the devil goes to God, and he's trying to manipulate uh, through discourse with with God, and not only the devil. So at the highest levels of spirits and gods. This is happening. But then at the lowest level um, with humans and Job and his friends who start to do the same thing, trying to cast doubt into his mind, trying to trying to make him sway um, away from his faith. And um, it is a heartbreak, heartbreaking story. I've read it three times. Um, well, I've read it twice and listened to it on the uh, podcast, uh, the Bible in a Year podcast, which I truly love. Um, and uh it's heartbreaking, but there is a purpose. And it is the purpose is that life is going to happen. Just like Rocky says, you're going to get hit with blows like you've never believed before that you don't even think exist. They will come. And Job, I mean, Job is the example of everything going wrong. Absolutely everything from losing family to his own health, to all his wealth, all these things, even his friends. Right. Um, but he remains steadfast and he 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 quarrels with God a bit. He questions God, but this is him reflecting, right? But he still chooses the path of God, which is unbelievable to a lot of people. I'm sure that most people would just throw their faith away and say, ah, God is, you know, doesn't exist or else this wouldn't happen. I mean, that happens all the time in, in, in the world, you know, with uh, people. But um, the reason... I believe that God does this is to prove to the devil and to humanity. He's talking to us. Basically the Bible is like talking to us and uh, is to show us that there are people that are willing 
to stand up to adversity, that are willing to take the blows and not blame others and to stand up on their two feet and keep pushing forward at the darkest of times when it seems helpless. And what happens? Well, Job is liberated and, well, we have a book about him today. <laughs> I mean, we're still talking about him because he's so famous. But the the, the the Bible in the year, the the pastor, Mike, he says that uh, uh, the, the book of Job, Job is our brother. He is our brother and he is our teacher to show us how to act under adversity. And people are going to talk and you're going to want to listen. But sometimes you shouldn't listen to the opinions of people, whether it be your friends or the devil himself. Yeah, the, the only thing I didn't like about it, to be honest, is that I, I admired how Job was able to stay fixated and strong and maintain faith that there was either a reason for the suffering or that it was part of life and maybe a part of just God's plan. Um, however, I felt like it didn't really give me any tools about how I can kind of reframe life in my own way to, to deal with that. Like I felt like the main thing he was saying was you just need faith and we need to have that um, complete trust, but there wasn't any psychological tools. But bear in mind, I, I am aware that the book is, you know, it was the book is, is uh, a powerful story that is somewhat old, right? It's like hundreds of years old, right? So I don't think they had logotherapy back then, thousands. right? Yeah. Sorry. Thousands. Oh, I sorry. I said Even thousands. thousands. Yeah. Okay. Thousands. thousands of years. Do you feel like that's missing in the Bible? Do you feel like that sometimes, like it's not, the, but, or do you feel like that there is power in, in just there's power in the faith and there's power power in the mindset of just being completely um, resilient? Yeah, I believe there's power in the resiliency. Um, and the thing about the Bibles, it is one story. Uh, so like the book of Job cannot stand on its own. Uh, mm -hmm. It just can't. It is it is one piece of the puzzle and it all works together. Now, there's a saying and this is ancient biblical saying, but we use it today uh, in a different way. But we are human beings, not human doings. And you talk about the tools, right? You talk about the tools that aren't provided in the book of Job. But, uh, you know, the one tool is acceptance, right? Learning how to accept because nobody's going to have as bad of a life as Job did. <laughs> Nobody. So, so the, I mean, the only worse way, the only way it gets worse is Job himself is mutilated and like, maybe like Jesus was, he's crucified. That's really the only way to make that story worse at the end. And then God laughs at him. That's the only way to make it worse because Job endured every kind of adversity, pain and suffering there is. Um, but yeah, again, we are human beings, not human doings. And I believe that comes from The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Uh, that, but that's also in the Bible. That's also very much in the Bible. Look at the book of Job. He, he just doesn't, he just accepts it. And he just keeps going. He just, he just bees. He doesn't try to, I mean, he does struggle and try to fight back a little bit. Not fight, but like argue with God and ask for a better life. But eventually he just accepts, you know, his lot. And then all things get better after he's accepted everything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point, especially the first point you made, which is that it's 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 one story in the context of other stories. And I think maybe that I feel like with the Bible, there's like a particular little lesson to learn out of every kind of parable or analogy or allegory. And there's it's it's kind of like all little kind of tricks and techniques and 
um, like little bits of awareness or wisdom that's weaving into there. So it's not like you said, it's not um, it's not one story you can read that on its own and have all the answers. But yeah, it's a, it's it's powerful. Um, I don't know. Can I read this poem out to you? The the rose that grew from concrete. Have you have you yeah, heard about? Okay, have you heard about it? Have you read it? Uh, I have not heard about it until, um, well, this morning, just a couple, like an hour ago, Sure, <laughs> you, sure. you told me that that was one you'd like to talk about. Uh, I, I hope it's the same Pope. It's very short, right? Extremely short. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a copy yeah. of it. So you got it. It's, it got is, it. it's, it's already up. I got oh, it. Okay, great. Awesome. Yeah. I think it's, it was written by like, there's two versions of it. One by Tupac Shakur and there was another more extended version that someone else kind of doctored but the the short version will do I, I kind of think that you know this was written um I think in the early 90s and you know Tupac Shakur growing up in um I, I, I you would know more than I do about this he growing up in where, where did he grow up in the the hood let me look at let me look it up where did Tupac Shakur grow up do you know uh, he grew up in California, Southern California. I, I'm not sure the exact city, but I, I know that his his mother wasn't an idiot. They may have been in some sort of a, a hood, so to speak, but uh, he comes from ver a very, very educated mother who is actually part of, I believe, the Black Panthers movement. Um, and this got caught him a lot of flack be, being related to her. I mean, he personally wasn't, but his mom was, but she was very intelligent. I think she was like a professor or something. Did you find something on it? Yeah, I'm just going to put it in now. He, he said, uh, put it to ChatGPT to help me here. Yeah, he was born in 1971 in East Harlem, New York City, United States. He grew up oh, in Baltimore. Grew up in but I I, th I heard third he was grew up in, in California as well. Hold on. And you're right. Listen to this. Uh, so uh, later, York. he relocated to California, became a prominent figure in the West Coast hip-hop scene. Tupac Shakur is widely regarded as one of the most influential and iconic rappers in the history of hip-hop music. Um, but didn't didn't he grow up? Like, where was the dangerous? Didn't where was the dangerous part of where he grew up? Wasn't that in 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 uh, like Queens? Dude, New York, Baltimore, <laughs> they're, they're all dangerous, bro. They're all super dangerous. But I, I you just re reminded me, yes, I remember he was born and raised in the East Coast and then moved to the West Coast. I can't believe I forgot that. Um, probably because he became famous on the West Coast and he represented West Coast rap, which was more dance related than message related. But Tupac never forgot his poetry. He still brought his poetry to the West Coast. But if you if you know anything about hip hop or the history of hip hop, there was a big divide between West Coast, which is, well, you got to think about it. It's the Spanish Southwest, right? So it's very dance related, dance oriented. Um, whereas the, new, the East Coast rap scene, um, unless you're down in Florida, but the Northeast uh, rap scene is very uh, more about uh, well, like the Harlem Renaissance, talking about uh, the problems that exist, the hard life, and so it's more message. And the beats aren't super danceable until later on, to like Jay Z and some other dudes that came out of there. Then it becomes more danceable. Yeah, that's a great overview, man. Thanks for that. The way the way that I've taught it a couple of times to the to the couple of times to the my students. And the way that I've kind of mentioned it to them is just that there was a lot of gang violence, there was a lot of segregation, um, or there was a lot of um, probably racism, 
there was police brutality and violence on the street, a lot of gang violence. So um, blacks fighting against blacks or, or uh, a lot of poverty, um, a lot of crime. And it was just a dangerous place to grow up. And, and again, like a mentality of, and I'm a bit rusty when I talk about this because I don't really know a lot about it at all. Um, I'm not from there. I'm not from the United States, of course, but just the mentality as well of, of people. So, you know, if you grow up in a place that's poor and there's a lot of, you know, what's, what is the mentality of the people around you? And a lot of times that is just kind of, um, it's not optimistic. It's not, uh, it, they're not building hopes and dreams. They're just trying to survive. Right. And, you know, for him as a black man that, you know, there was a lot of, like I said, gang violence and, and police brutality and, and, you know, and, and also fighting between gangs. There's a lot of black men getting shot and killed fighting between each other. You know, he, from, from that to becoming an extremely uh, successful um, hip hop artist, rapper, you know, he was an actor, a poet, um, you know, basically an activist brought a lot of awareness to uh, the people about that situation. Then it was pretty admirable that he was able to do that. So I think that's kind of his journey because he was he he came from nothing, right? He literally yeah. came from nothing, and I think that's um, with all that adversity around him. So I read you this poem. It's pretty it's pretty short. It's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's like eight eight lines. It's called "The Rose That Grew from Concrete," and it goes by. Did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete? Proving nature's law is wrong. It learned to walk with without having feet. Uh, funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from concrete when no one else ever cared. And I love this poem, man. Like, but before I talk about it, like, what do you think about it as 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 a poem? Is that the first time you've you've heard it? Um, it is the first time I've ever like I read it like just once because okay. I only had a few minutes uh, when when I knew that's what we'd be talking about. So I just looked at it really quick. Um, but you know, I was looking for other poems as well. Um, but it really, you know, <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. There's not too much, you know going on so it allows you to focus on what the most important thing is and that's that rose overcoming its own adversity in a concrete jungle right um you know tupac i i, I don't know if i would say he came from nothing uh because he came from harlem right and harlem's where the renaissance took place and this poem that you that we're reading reminds me of uh, uh what is it langston called hughes. harlem harlem langston uh, yeah, hughes it's langston great. hughes yep very Harlem-esque, you know, I mean, the the Harlem Renaissance, you know, Harlem was a was a, a shithole, for lack of a better descriptive reference, sorry about that, but, uh, but it was a shithole. And because of that oppression, these people rose up and it wasn't just Langston Hughes. We had like Duke Ellington, I think we had all sorts of jazz and blues people coming out. We had painters, we had musicians, we had poets, we had um I don't think I don't know if the Black Panthers, if you have a moment, can you look that up? The Black Panthers came from there. Um, but Tupac came from that place and that soil was rich with pride from its history. And also uh, Tupac's mother was highly educated. Uh, highly might be the wrong adjective, but she was educated for sure at the least. Um, she had degrees. So um, <clears throat> so I wouldn't say he came from nothing, but after the Harlem Renaissance, you know, these people, like these wonderful people, these artists were 
making it waves in the American, you know, American fabric or whatever, uh, they were making waves. And when that happens, they have the, the power to change the minds of average people. And when that happens, you know that there's gonna, it's going to be followed with like violence. There's going to be storytelling coming from the higher ups, the people that don't want change. Um, and so it's propagated, right? It's propagated against the people and then the people turn against themselves. So, you know, I think that part of why they left Harlem was because of that. And um, uh, yeah, so uh, I don't think I answered your question. Did I? Uh, I do love this. But it, like I said, this poem reminds me, it just makes me think of Langston Hughes, the poem. Harlem, right? Um, but instead of like saying what would happen, you know, what does happen, Tupac's focusing on the choice, making the choice to uh, stay on the positive side of things, to grow and to to face adversity and to realize that under immense adversity, uh, beauty still grows right? Beauty is still possible when it seems like it is not. Like concrete, nothing grows out of concrete, but just that one crack, that one pinhole in the fabric, light and beauty will shine through. So that's what I get from his poem. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And man, I appreciate the context too, because I was teaching Harlem by Langston Hughes the other day with my students. I was teaching him for the first time. We spent a little bit of time talking about the Harlem Renaissance and we, we talk about it a little bit for Gatsby, uh, when we teach The Great Gatsby by Fitzgerald, because it's such, it seems like such a really unique period of time in American history where, uh, like you said, an explosion of culture, art, activism, ideas, uh, like you said as well, a sense of um, philosophy, pride, all of those things coming together, which is, which is super powerful. Um, because they're kind of re reinventing an identity and then screaming to the world who we are, wanting recognition, uh, and then fighting up against, you know, rising up against the injustices of the world. So, yeah, I, that's a great connection because when I read this too, there, there is a bit of that Harlem-esque-ness uh, about it. But when I teach this poem, I talk about the same thing. I'm like, you know, why would a rose grow from concrete? And I teach the extended metaphor with this too, like saying that, you know, it's not is it possible for roses to grow out of concrete? And then the students always say, of course not. But how did it grow? It didn't grow from just hard concrete. It grew because there was a crack in the concrete. And then we kind of get to the point that the the we say that every time we're talking about the rose, we're not actually talking about the rose, we're talking about Tupac, right? And then every time, um, so that, and that's him growing as an individual and then overcoming adversity. Right. And it's just the crack in the concrete, that alliteration is all he kind of needed was a little bit of opportunity, right? A small amount of opportunity to grow and, and uh, to grow, look for, and, and fight and, and flourish. And so it's, it's, I think it's really powerful because, you know, as it's a, a rose is something that grows, it needs to be nurtured. It has to fight for life, especially when it's a seed. And then, but if it can overcome, like we we talk about how the the road is like um, society. There's not a lot of nutrition in the society. And then if we can talk about, okay, well then, um, if the rose can overcome that and have dignity, have integrity, and be like this powerful symbol of success, and the the individual gaining its um, you know, becoming its its true form or its um, you know, it's it reaching its potential as an individual, then it's a a powerful thing and like you said man it's pretty simple like there's a bit of personification there saying 
you know, learn to walk without having feet. But I, I, I think the thing that I like very about biblical, it. Very biblical, right? Like learn to walk without having feet. We just talked about picking up your mat and walking, you know, the parable of Jesus to the, the lame man at, by the fountain. Uh, and I think that that is portrayed here. And I say simple, but you got to remember the greatest of symphonies are built on very simple structures. And yeah. uh, so I'm not saying I'm not trying to uh, diminish or demean Tupac's poem at all. In fact, the fact that he's saying so much in so little space is amazing. And it's almost like living in a project, right? We have these, uh, these um, images and these, these things like concrete. Okay. So what is concrete? How can we look at concrete being a theme of this poem, right? It is a theme in this poem because it's, well, it's, it's what makes the rose so impressive. So let's look at concrete. Well, you know, a lot of these like low income or projects, housing or hoods, it's just concrete. And with concrete, concrete is not beautiful. It's ugly. But concrete is also confining, right? So he could be actually looking at society uh, as a whole, as, as Langston Hughes did. What happens to a dream deferred, right? When you're not allowed to have this, you know, you're not allowed to reach for your dreams. Um, and, you know, concrete is a hard substance that doesn't allow things to move. It boxes things in and it's a it's used for classism in the United States. Right. You have this this societal construct, which is so confining. And, you know, if you're born in the projects, you're supposed to live and die there. Uh, you're not. Wait, wait. Hear me out. Don't jump to conclusions. This is part of something bigger. But, you're, you know, you are in a prison cell of a sense. And concrete is what all prisons are built out of that and metal bars. And projects and those are just big concrete buildings that are so lifeless right and there's no hope in these places and i believe that tupac used concrete as a metaphor not just for the project but for the structure and infrastructure of societal uh well uh, derivations the things that they built up intentionally and tupac says hey this isn't all it is it's not just the projects. It's not just concrete. All we need is one little sliver of hope, one crack in the fabric, one crack in the concrete, and all can get loose. Beauty will come out of it. And Tupac is a true example of that. I mean, if you read other of his like poems and stuff, I mean, this guy had, he had passion, man. And he was a loving person, man. Yeah, man, I think that's 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 a strong connection. Like concrete representing society, everything literally being concrete. He probably had that visual in his mind when he wrote that, you know. And then, and then everything is, you know, concrete is kind of dead. It's lacking life as well. It's like you said, covering everything up. There's and it's no man-made. It's man-forged. It's not like marble or gold or something that is natural. It is a man-made construct, just like society. Yeah, and it, that works as a really nice juxtaposition between the. The, the rose itself being a powerful symbol of nature and the human spirit and then the the cold um the cold concrete which is just lacking in any kind of emotion or and it's lacking in nutrients and and life right so i think that's a a great comparison I and mean, your connection there with langston hughes harlem is all about dreams and then what does it say it says funny it seems but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air, right? So that's that's exactly what it's you know this poem is like this it has a like this tone of triumph and and um, 
dignity and, and accomplishment and, and pride, right? Because it was able to do exactly what Langston's uh, Harlem's poem was talking about the the was was not able to do right which is the individual not being able to achieve its dreams it's like i think from memory it's like gives you six possible circumstances or consequences that that occur from not being able to achieve your dreams and this is the opposite so yeah, yeah he is- just focuses on hope like the, i think a major theme of this is hope and uh, perseverance and trust in yourself um but I, yeah, I love to say you don't have it. Learn to walk without having feet. Okay, so these guys are confined; they're not meant to move. I might say these guys. I'm talking about the rose people uh, in these situations, um, and but by keeping hope alive, by keeping their dreams alive, it learned to walk. It learned to breathe fresh air and regain greater. Uh, uh, nutrients or health, so to speak, health, right? Fresh air. It has a lot to do with health, something that you don't really expect to see in an industrialized concrete development, like neighborhood or anything like that. Um, so yeah, man, this is a, a lot being said in a very, very small crack. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe as well, the fresh air is kind of like getting out of the, the, the social expectations or you know, getting out of the the consciousness or zeitgeist of that community, right? So being able to overcome that and then being surrounded by people that are successful, because you know, if you're in the concrete and then everyone's kind of like bringing you down, then being able to grow it and rise above that would be a would be a, an achievement in itself, and you you sort of surpass and become in, in a different level. Yeah, man, that's pretty much it for the Rosa Grew from Concrete, I think. But I will say though, I feel like maybe he, he had maybe just the right amount of adversity like he he was able to overcome it he was able to rise above it and grow and it didn't crush him but i think it probably crushed a lot of other people i don't know if everyone has well i i would i would argue that people don't always always have that same mentality um resilience to be able to just go okay well you know i'm in a shitty situation and what am i going to do about it what's my plan of escape and i'm going to work and and get myself out of it it's it's a it's a t- definitely a tough thing to do absolutely man and i really love the this just came to me remember i didn't read this poem but i i have kind of been ed- well i have been educated in reading poems obviously <laughs> um but it's been a long time i only do it with you right now and then for my poetry unit with my school which will i'll be doing my second one here in a few couple months but the breath of fresh air what does that, I mean, we use that expression all the time in English, right? And what does it mean? Welcomed change, right? Mm. Welcome change. It's a breath of fresh air. You know, like if you get, if you have like a horrible leader in your society and then you get someone that's totally different, not, not the same, they're a breath of fresh air. There's something that is new, exciting, and it's not the same mundane, monotony, that we go through over and over again. So I do like that breath of fresh air. It's not just nature. It just came to me that it is a, a welcome to change. Yeah, that's, that's well said. And that's probably, and like you said, man, it's, it's just when people write good poetry, it's so much to unpack. And I think, you know, maybe that's the idea, the, uh, the idea that that's there or the, the concept because a lot of my students always, they always ask, they say, you know, like, why do people write poems? And is it for the reader or is it for the person? And it's like the emotion that's kind of encapsulated there. And like, imagine sitting there with this kind of message to say, it's like, I want to express it, you know, through poetry. 
and then be able to write, you know, kind of find all these words, pull these words out of the ether that expresses the idea. It's a really complex thing to to do. And it's 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 always ambiguous. Like like you said, you interpret things in different ways. And you know, it's it's kind of hard to really think about who the speaker is compared to who the author is and are they the same person or or not. But it's just hard to really, I feel, you know, understand the speaker and, and everything they're trying to say. But when you really feel it, maybe that's it. When you really feel it, it kind of clicks and then you understand the language and then you kind of get it, you know, and maybe that's what you just did there and you kind of felt it. And this, what felt like was the message. And then you were able to express that idea. Yeah. I love poetry just for that reason. Um, you know, and I think that Poetry is wonderful just to read. It's a way to get away from your own mind, right? It's a breath of fresh air because it takes us out of reality, our own personal realities. Um, and it just, it's like any literature, just it, it's an escape, so to speak. Uh, but even more, um, I feel like poetry is better when it's shared because I feel like that's when I have better ideas about a poem, right? So when I read it, uh, don't be offended. But when I first read it, I was like, uh, what, why does he even want to talk about this one? Like, I guess I can see the adversity with the rose, but as we started to talk about it, I was like, dude, it blew my, blew my mind a little bit. I was like, wow, this is actually true poetry. Like, like at first glance, you know, if I was sitting alone, I might've just read it and put it away, but by reading it again and again, and keeping to look, look, read between the lines, you know, um, we start to see that there's a whole world, a whole, like, a paradigm going on a whole like teaching a morale that is coming out of this very simple but lovely poem so i love discussing it i think it's great um and yeah man this is thank you for sharing that i, I i'm stoked it makes me want to read more of tupac's stuff you know i just listen to his music and i think once when i was younger i looked at a couple poems and i maybe even read this one but like i said at first glance it doesn't seem all that you know like all that deep, really. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel all that deep. And I think that's also part of it, right? Like a lot of us humans, we think of ourselves as plain and invaluable, right? And like we don't have value. We're just, no, there's just, you know, we're nothing special. But Tupac's showing us here that even the plainest and simplest of beings are something great and beautiful. And I, I just, I just love it. This is why I love poetry, dude. I think we should do this more and more often uh, with the podcast for sure to help yeah. bring it back to life. Yeah, poetry. I agree. I agree. I've, I've got um, like this Norton's anthropology of literature at the moment on my desk and I'm just kind of flicking through it and then find, finding poems that, you know, that, that speak to me. And I think the more that, you know, our jobs as English teachers is to allow kids to see more you know, so the more that we can show them and the more that they can see, the more they can read on their own and they can see more and appreciate it. And then kind of when you have that level, it's really cool to just sit down and go, oh, I wonder what this poem's about. Um, and it's, it's fun. It's definitely fun and it's very powerful. And it's, if you understand, sometimes you have to do a bit of work, I think, to understand the, the historical context uh, to, to really appreciate, you know, what was Langston Hughes banging on about. Because if you just read his stuff, it can, it can be at face value, still good. But then if you if you read a bit more context, as you gave with the this poem, it just gives a bit more depth to what was happening to these people, right? When they were writing, what what things that they wanted to, well, what things did they want to express and what things were they feeling that they wanted to um, maybe make people aware of or, or bring to people's attention or critique, right? Did you want to 
Um, do you want to? Did you want to pick a poem to to share out now, or or not? You know, I did, but part of me like doesn't want to like, you know, like. I don't know, neglect Tupac's poem, you know, like I don't, I feel like, I feel like that was enough. Like I said, when I first read it, I was like, okay, we're going to need another poem, but I guess part of me doesn't, but at the same time, we could, um, we could uh, read one more. Um, I'll let you choose which one you want, if you want, but if you want to move on from poetry, we can, uh, but I did choose three. I'll just put the names out there. So listeners who maybe want to read poems, uh, about adversity and overcoming it. Um, well, they have some, you know, homework. <laughs> I don't want to call it homework, <laughs> but some inspiration. Um, so one of the poems I really loved, um, was Rudyard Kipling's if, um, and it is a father speaking to his son. Okay. And um, it could be a son or a daughter, but I found it special because, um, well, it, I have a son and, and I know that adversity is everywhere around us and we all experience in our own way. But having texts like this laying around uh, for hard times can really shed some light on in a dark place. You know what I mean? Um, so there's that one and he's talking about becoming it's kind of like about manhood but i could i would argue that it could be about womanhood too it doesn't matter i think we're all human beings and really uh we're all men um uh, i also chose um mother to son by langston hughes because i love langston hughes he's one of my one of my favorites i mean i i have a lot to be honest so because i studied poetry so i have a lot and i just like langston hughes i love it i love his i love his work i just really do uh so i chose that one and then i have Inv invictus which is by william ernest henley um i believe he's english um and that one's a really powerful one it's one i haven't been able to let go of it's one i keep revisiting um so yeah uh what do you think should we read one more um they're pretty dense poems but they're good ones they're really powerful poems maybe we should um maybe we should unpack them where we can just maybe do one of them and just go like proper at it um yeah so maybe we should like you said maybe we should talk a little bit more on what what is adversity and share some stories uh but i've got a bukowski one that's really easy we don't have to analyze it to to throw at you and i think that'll give us something to talk about in the sense of um reading it and then not so much analyzing it, but moving on to talk about, uh, I guess, some of the adversity. And and I would like to hear a bit more stories of, and I, I would like to share maybe one or two stories about how adversity has made me better. What yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, let's, say, let's save the poetry for a different time. Maybe we can have another episode where we talk about this, because this is something that doesn't go away, right? Adversity will never go away. Um, you know, as much as we, what we hope for a utopia, uh, you know, and we hope for peace on earth forever. History shows us that that is not the case. <laughs> and, and, and it never and you will. probably and you, if it was the if if it was possibility, would you want it? You know, like it's conflict and and adversity, and they're all things that like we seem to want to be, you know, push ourselves away from. We seem to want, but they're all things that ultimately they're they're not separate from life it's not like you have a happy life and then conflict comes in and wrecks your day and then disappears for a while and then you go back to your happy life it's kind of like life is a constant push and pull it's as there's um light and darkness there is 
conflict and and peace. It's kind of like it's the full scope of what it means to be human. So I think I think when we embrace it, and you know, then we say, okay, well, then it's just part of it's it's not so much trying to avoid conflict. It's just more. I think it's more of when it comes um, to be able to be ready for it, and when it comes to be able to work with it, right? Absolutely. And I love that you said it's like the human condition because it truly is, isn't it? Imagine a child being born and how vulnerable uh, they are. And as they start to grow, they start to see the things around them, like their parents doing all these things, but they can't do it. They can't feed themselves when they're hungry. They can't drink when they're thirsty. And I truly believe in the workings of the mind even before childbirth. Like I just do because my son is a, my personal experience with my son. I told you this, he came out the womb, dude. And within like five days, I don't remember the exact day, but it was immediately after he was home. I always use music. Okay. So I used to sing to the womb all the time. Cause I am a true believer of that. Uh, I used to read stories in the womb. I used to massage. I used to try to create a very healthy environment for the fetus. Dude, I've told you this, and I'm going to say it again. I put on a nursery rhyme that I used to sing to him. And dude, he reacted completely. Like he turned his head towards the TV immediately within the first few notes and smiled brightly. This is not a lie. So I don't care what anybody says. I have my opinions and I'm sticking with this one that kids are hyper aware, even in the womb, they start to learn, they start to hear the sounds outside of them, the vibrations and try to make sense of all these things. But here, fast forward a year, imagine being a year, one year old and watching your parents walk back and forth and always come with gifts of food and drink. And you can't walk. And you just want to walk, you want to do what the other humans are doing. You can't that is pure adversity, right? That's like, it's like a it almost feels like a punishment, right, to these poor kids because humans develop so slowly, um, com- comparative, like comparing with other animals. Um, so yeah, man, I believe it's natural. Would I like less adversity? I don't know. I I think that I, if anything, I'd want to help people have the tools and the calm and peace of mind that they need to confront and well, tread through adversity. I think that that's more important is, is helping them understand that it's ever present and we are human beings. And so we are being with adversity. Um, and that's, you know, it's better to have the tools because there's triumph and there is like glory and there's pride in overcoming adversity. You know, that's just the way it is. Learning a language is hard as hell. But once you start to hear the things around you and know what people are saying, all that hard work is so valuable, right? So yeah, man, we can save those poems. I think we should. I think we could have a lot of great ideas and conversations. Maybe next time we can focus on real world uh, uh, stories, current stories of adversity. But I would like to talk about like how, yeah, we can overcome it and how maybe others can overcome it. Um And I believe that perception is a big part of that. I'm going to ask you a real quick question about, uh, you know, Pablo, is it Pablo Kahlo? Mm -hmm. Was that his name? Yeah. So Pablo Kahlo, I'm going to uh, say a quote real quick. It's actually, I don't know if it's an exact quote because I just pulled it out of my head, but in Pablo Kahlo's alchemist, uh, the character says uh, he's told by the Arab, there's an Arab candle. uh, Um. 
what is it ceramic seller he has a store oh it's, a, it's like glass he's um yeah he yeah, ends up selling glass on the hill yeah and so like you have this that story just to sum it up for people really quick is like a story of self-discovery right it's a story of self-discovery which takes place in northern africa i believe it starts in morocco but uh it's been a long time since i've read this you guys but what i never forget is when the the glass dealer um tells him what's the character's name do you remember no, I no, I don't. It's been like twenty years before I read it as well. Yeah, but I'll I'll, I'll look it up as well. Yep. So, the glass seller says, you know, they're having a discussion, and I think that uh, the main character is undergoing adversity, starting to question his own um, goals, his own actions, right? And like we said, there's external and internal adversity. And I believe that the, the, the search for self-discovery is an internal mission, right? It is happening within the mind of the individual. But the glass seller starts going into it and he says, count your blessings because every blessing ignored becomes a curse. And so I think that in the face of adversity, it is good to stop, to remember that we are being and that everybody is undergoing these hardships, but to focus on the things that have gone well, you know, focus on the things you're grateful for. A lot of uh, self-help uh, personal growth writers and authors and speakers are now saying exactly that. Write a gratitude list. It's one of the most powerful therapeutic uh tasks that an individual can do is don't think about the bad things, but write a gratitude list, write a list of all the things you are grateful for. And that glass seller in the alchemist by Paulo Kahlo is telling you that same message that if you don't embrace and count your blessings, if you ignore your blessings, they do become curses. And I just think that's a beautiful line. I'll never forget it, probably until the day I die. Um, I haven't read that for a long time. Well, so anyways, what do you think about that? Do you think that's true, that if we ignore our blessings, we become sick, they become curses? Yeah, it's it's that book is really powerful. And I remember reading it like 20 years ago as well. I think I read it in like 2003, 2005. Um, but... I remember in this in this in the sense of like maybe connecting it for me I felt like the book was a lot about um the like you said the journey it's a it's a book about self discovery and it's kind of sometimes when we go on a journey and look for the treasure it's 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 with us the whole time instead of trying to get somewhere and, and it's it's there you know we're going to get it at the end um but yeah I don't I don't know I think it's um like what do you think about gratitude lists do you think they're helpful yeah i i think that's spot on definitely you know it's like you said these people that are doing self-help or self-improvement they i guess what are we trying to do is if we're trying to as you mentioned shape our perspective i love stoicism because stoicism is a lot about it's not what happens to you it's how you reframe it it's about controlling your inner world it's it's a lot about um it's a, it's a lot about your virtues and doing the right thing and, and trying to work under pressure and having been the integrity of of using you know tapping into your virtues it's really hard to do um 
you know, and but at the same time too, I have this problem with with dreams and goals and sort of in, in the alchemist of of trying to appreciate where you are and being grateful for where you are, but at the same time wanting something else. And it's like they seem like hard things to have at the same time. But I think stoicism is a very powerful way. It could be Buddhism, it can be through but it's it's something about building this inner like but a lot of these ideologies whatever they are what do they have in common is like it's it's a lot about building your inner world it's a lot about reframing what life is doing to you in the way that okay how what does this mean to me okay and how can i use that in a way that fortifies me and makes me stronger or well, you know how can i react in a way that's you know not being the victim not saying not asking the question why me you know, maybe asking a better question is like, what can I do about it? And what can, how can I utilize this for me to be the, the best version of who I am? And then when you embrace that um, adversity, then you can become stronger. But it, it's it's definitely tough to do. But, you know, how have you built, like, how have you built your internal world to be stronger? Like, you know, when you're experiencing adversity, like, I would, you know, if, if anyone was listening to this, I would think they would say, well, you know, how do I build my internal world to be stronger? And how do I, how do I, is it, is it through gratitude? Is it through, you know, when something bad happens to me, how do I process that in a positive way? Um, good question. Uh, again, I believe like focusing on what's um, good is, is really, really important. Um, but it's interesting. The more we have this discussion, I'm thinking that the only true battlefield in life is in your own mind. And, um, the, you know, I just just thought of that. Like, that's the war that we're with. Right. You remember the old cartoons where you had the devil on your shoulder and then you had like two angels on your shoulder. You had a devil one and a nice one, you know, the angel and the devil. Like, I feel like that is like really what we're talking about right now. You see how these things are so universal. Like that, that's Disney like for kids. And that idea is so profound is that, you know, we live and breathe our thoughts. I really believe that now it's starting to come clear that our mind is the place where we need to fight for, for our own uh, success. We have to fight for what we want. And a lot of it is, it's not material. Like in the alchemist, it's not material. The treasure is within us. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches, you know, especially, especially the new Testament, right? Jesus's story is that you are the salt of the earth. You are, you are God is inside of you, not in a church. Okay. Go to church to be with your community members, because that's good to hang out with community. However, God is for everyone. It's within you. Um, and I believe that if we don't tend our minds and our thoughts as a, a nurturing garden that it is that provides nutrients and um, health and life, if we don't nurture and, and take care, even manicure that, that, that garden it will be riddled with weeds, right? And thorns. And I remember our very early on, some of our first podcasts, you had the uh, idea of the bonsai tree and we made metaphors throughout. It became this analogy for like the, the podcast and it was beautiful, but it's that idea of needing to be tended to. And some of us, actually, I think all of us kind of need it, but we always look outside for it, right? We always look for a lover that can provide it. And we curse our parents for not 
providing it. And we go to churches and synagogues and mosques and temples to look for it. Um, we read books for it. We eat meals for it. You know, we buy things we like for it. But all of the great prophets and all of the great thinkers and the Stoics all said the same thing, that it is how you shape your own mind. It is the thoughts that you hold on to and the thoughts that you're willing to throw away um, that actually affect our material world as well. Believe it to conceive it. So if you believe in something, then it will manifest as long as you focus on that. And don't listen to the devil in the book of Job. Don't listen to Job's friends that are trying to discourage him from faith. Follow your own faith. Follow your own belief. And I think that's the best way to, um, to, to, to basically to deal with adversity is within your own mind and heart and soul. Yeah, I love what you said then. The real battle is in our minds. So it's a psychological battle. You know, that's, yeah, that's brilliant. And it's, yeah, that's powerful. For, for me, what I try to do is something, let's say, in inverted commas, bad happens. Uh, you know, I, well, sometimes I, I think about, okay, what did I do to kind of, did I create this or did it, did it happen? It spontaneously happened. And that's kind of what I think of first. And I, and I try to kind of break it down to think about, okay, um, what, how can I react to it? What can I do that's positive? How can I kind of mitigate this situation, right? What can I do that's in my control that'll help make the situation better? Um, there's a good word for that. Yeah. So let's, then I, I would kind of just, and then I kind of put my, I try to put my emotions aside and then try to guide myself by my ethical compass. And I go, well, the only thing that I can ethically do here that I think would be the right thing to do would be this. And then I kind of just try to choose that. And then I, I just try to run with that. And I feel like every decision I've made like that, that's come from the heart, has come from, you know, with my ethical compass, I've never regretted because I felt like it's the, it's the right decision based on who I am, my identity, you know, considering the other people. And it's just, how do I deal with this? You know, it's, it's kind of um, mitigating a tough situation. And, and sometimes it's sometimes you might be putting yourself out of the picture and, and just having more empathy for the other person. But it's definitely tough to do that, man. I think, um, you know, it's a, but it's it's like the I think Epi, uh, Epictetus said that the majority of the suffering is also in our mind. And the majority of suffering is it's way less than we feel it is but our perception of it is is seems much more overwhelming and overbearing so if you know you're cooking dinner and you got kids running around it might seem like the end of the world and really arduous and painful um and over overwhelming but if you kind of separated yourself out of it maybe it wouldn't be as painful you know looking from the outside to the inside it's just how you're emotionally processing it so yeah, it is it is definitely tough. And I think if you're a person trying to reframe things, it's kind of you might have to use the logical mind, be guided by your virtues, study stoicism, or um what there's the other, you know, if you read The Power of The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle, I know you've read that. Did that book help you at all in the sense of breaking down ideas and understanding? Like, can you remember that book and did it did well, it impact you? Yeah, for sure. And that's, I can't break it down because I read it back in 2006, I believe, a uh, long time ago. I was still at university. Well, my first, my bachelor's degree. So it was definitely prior to 2008. Um, but yeah, I, you know, 
living in the moment, right? Yeah. And this is something that's really great about, I mean, it has its limitations, don't get me wrong, but it is a tool and it is something that we should focus on because really all we ever have is the now, right? And that's what Eckhart Tolle said is that, that you only have the now and tomorrow will be the now. And so there's no better time. Like why put things off? Because all you have is now. So like, even if you wait till tomorrow, it's still now. And so you're going to feel the same way tomorrow as you do now, which is I want to procrastinate. So no, the time for change is right here. And one of the big lines that sticks with me from that is human beings versus human doings. And uh, that's why I try to like was trying to mention earlier about trying not to take it all too serious, try not to over like overachieve to solve all the problems of your life by yourself. Try to accept it as your personal unique experience and just be with it, right? Just be. And uh, so I remember that and I really liked that. Um, but another way I think that people, you know, can really help, uh, you know, battle or tread through or, overcome adversity. So we have the mind, right? Is the battlefield. And that is our responsibility because we cannot change others. We can only change ourselves. And I'll be honest with everybody because I love just sharing my truth because it helps me remember my own weaknesses. And I'm not scared of my weaknesses. I embrace them. But one of my problems and one of my weaknesses and have been throughout my marriage and life especially marriage. I think it mostly took off during marriage, man, and having a family is this desire to control other people's behaviors. Right. And I know that sounds sick. It sounds I, when I say it, I don't like that, but that is who I am. I'm a, you know, I'm a, as some ways I feel like I'm an alpha uh, in some ways, you know, I'm definitely headstrong and I'm an Aries and I have a lot of passion, tons of it. And, you know, I shared a house with my wife, and her mother, my son, and instead of leading by examples, just controlling my behaviors, I was concerned with theirs, right? So I was starting to do that thing, pointing my finger, like Rocky said, pointing your finger, blaming others. And that sickness, man, when I think about it now, and I've thought about it a lot, I've written diary stuff, journal entries down about it. Uh, I think that a lot of us do this. So I'm actually not scared to be so brutally honest and expose myself because I believe everybody. I hear people, I see people, listen to the media. It's all finger pointing. It's all somebody else's fault. It's that victim shaming crap, you know, that is making the West extremely sick um, and unhealthy. Um, is this victim like pointing blame at other people's, you know, Obama had a commencement speech and he said, we don't have time for this victimness, right? We don't have time to say, this happened to me. I grew up in a poor house. I'm descended from slaves, blah, blah, blah. President Obama went through this list of the way people victimize themselves. He said that this will get you nowhere, that being playing the victim is building bridges to nowhere and monuments to nothingness. And that sticks with me, dude. Like that's when I, I mean, I loved that speech, bro. Um, so it's in our minds. We can only control ourselves and we all have work to do. We all do. When you're pointing your finger at someone, look at your hand. 
there are three fingers pointing back at you. So maybe you should be looking at yourself three times as much as you're looking at other people's behaviors, right? And the focus is on you. The three fingers are on you, whereas only one. And that's the, the finger is the external, right? The index finger is the external, the blaming of the outside force, whereas the three fingers pointing back are the internal. And it is our responsibility. It is our closet that needs cleaning. It is our garden that needs tending. But we also are social animals. And I do believe that our life and our well-being is also affected by those we surround ourselves with. There was a Russian Orthodox priest back in Juneau, Alaska, that the whole community loved. It didn't matter if you were Jewish, atheist, philosophical, stoicist. I don't care. Everybody loved this guy because this guy had a demeanor about him. And all he did was help people. And he was the sweetest man. And he, but he's a Russian Orthodox, so he kind of stands out with his hats and you know, and his dress, his regalia. Um, however, he said that we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So to overcome adversity, surround yourself with people that have positive minds, right? You don't want negativity, negativity to drag you down. It only slows you down. So we have to stay in the present and count our blessings. And we need to surround ourselves with people that are like-minded and that are trying, you know, tackling the same uh, journey together. Uh, so I think that's important. You know, the garden of the mind is our responsibility and every curse we do or every blessing we do not like acknowledge or give thanks to becomes a curse, but that's not all. We also need to surround ourselves um, with good, positive, loving people. Don't ever, your friends will only build you up. If your friends criticize you or judge you, they're not your friends. So surround yourself with people that build you up and that want the best for you. And that's another recommendation for adversity. Yeah, bro. That's powerful, man. Thanks for sharing that. And that's, that's, um, yeah, like I can understand people want other people to behave in the right way or what we think is right. And people want to, people want and have expectations of how things should be. We want, we ultimately want what's best for other people. Right. And we, we have a, we project our realities on them and then that can kind and then if, if they don't behave in a certain way, then we can get kind of, then we get stressed or get annoyed because of the way that their acting is not meeting our expectations. It's really tough, man, because that situation I think is a really delicate one because at the same time, you know, when you're living with people, you know, want them to, you want them to react in a respectful way and behave in kind of like a, a way that's harmonious and do things that are that are but generally good for the family and then it's, it is difficult to let things slide when you feel like they're wrong or when you feel like they're they are hurting the the family unit um it takes i think it takes a lot of patience and love and a lot of a lot of unconditional love and a lot of trust that they'll kind of work it out to really just let go of those expectations and allow them to say, well, you know, you you can do it your way. This is what I think, but it's up to you, but it's, it's really tough. Um, maybe that links into that. Another idea that I got from the power of now to add to yours, which I think is the main idea, the, the idea that you brought forth, I think is the main idea. But the, the second idea is that your mind is an unreliable source of data and information. It's constantly, your mind is constantly telling you things that aren't real. 
and they're filling us with fear or they're just kind of criticizing and it's kind of like it's it, your mind is just looking for things to do and if if your mind isn't focused on something productive or focused in and and has habits that can can be positive or if something negative happens and it's kind of like you know we we want to lash out or react in a certain way if we haven't got a kind of coping mechanism there so like i'm annoyed because of this how am I, you know i'm going to lash out or react okay i'm annoyed i'm annoyed because of this how hang, hang on a second I'm going to stop. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to decide whether I need to say that or not. Uh, and then I'm going to either let that thought go or I'm going to act on it. But I think there's this, this real powerful, one of the most powerful ideas in that book is that you can't trust your mind. You know, what it has a very distinct, you know, inherent purpose. And that is usually to solve problems and to protect ourselves. It's not always good in a complex society of, you know, when you're trying to achieve a bunch of goals and maintain happy relationships, it's 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 can be really harmful to ourselves, you know, because I've seen a lot of people, they get into negative thought patterns and they've just got nothing to focus on, right? And then when they, when they or people work and they focus on that and they come home and they, they, their minds get into these patterns of negativity and then they kind of project that on the people around them. So I've learned that, geez, I've learned that your mind is, for me personally, I think your mental state is the most valuable thing you have. The way that we program our minds are really, really important. The language that we use to express our ideas are really important. It will determine if you're a victim or if you're accountable or if you're in control, if you have gratitude or if you have resentment. It's all very, very important and all kind of linked. So yeah, man, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's tough. Um I think the fact that you're super reflective, I think it's very positive in the sense of it's it's just, you know, it's just looking at who we are today and it's looking at, okay, what am I doing that wor is working and I'm getting the reaction and con and the, the natural outcomes that are working that I want and what am I doing that I'm not getting the reactions or the, or the outcomes that I want and just working with them and using other people as soundboards and, and, and constant um, feedback. They're kind of always giving us data and feedback to us all the time. So uh, yeah, man, I appreciate your honesty and sharing that, man. It's, 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 um, yeah, there's a lot of vulnerability about it, but I think all of us experience that at some level and all the time. Oh, for sure, man. And that's, you know, part of the reason why I feel so good about talking about it is that I know whether other people are willing to admit it or not. I'm a very, very observant person. Um, and this is a blessing and a curse, by the way. Um, but uh, I'm a hyper observant person. And I always have been and I've, I've, uh, I'm not going to get into it. But it's it's something I've been, like I said, blessed with. But due to the mind's landscape, it's also a curse at times when I'm not like, you know, if I'm like, allowing it to to drag me down because uh yeah you can tell when people are lying to you and it kind of hurts when it's come from someone you love but you have all the data you need to know for a fact but you know what i mean so you, you can tend to get into a dark place when you have this ability however um but yeah this goes back to the ego what you were saying is people's um people's you know uh, ability to think really negatively um and uh, to worry about others and what others are doing. You know, this goes back to like, uh, <laughs> well, Freud's ego and Eric Erickson's uh, life crisis, uh, the, the, the adolescence crisis. 
which is dominated by the ego. And as adolescents gain ego and they, they become self-reflective and they become aware that other people have thoughts, there's a tendency to actually what Erickson calls the imaginary audience to start thinking and putting words into their into those people's mouths. They, these kids think that everybody's looking at them, that everybody's judging them. And so back to my situation, uh, that was that's my we all have ego, no matter who you are. I don't care. Um, some of us, maybe mine were stronger when I was trying to like, when I was focused more on my anger towards the, the situation I couldn't control in my own household was me being like coming up with imaginative things, like thinking that they're when they didn't do what I thought they should. Like if I had recommendations for how to raise my son, I would I'd get upset. And I think that anybody would, mother or father, would get upset when they're asking their companion to please think about this and do it this way. And then there's to no avail, to no avail. But the problem is, is that it becomes an obsession of the mind. And I started thinking like, ah, they just think I'm stupid. They think I don't know anything. They think I'm just a man, blah, blah, blah. That's me. That's not what they're thinking. That was all my ego. So I think the mind is so powerful. It is the battlefield and the ego is not always your friend. We need an ego. Absolutely. But if it becomes too strong, too big, it can dominate your thoughts and it will only allow negativity. Like those adolescent kids worry that everybody's looking at their haircut when nobody really cares, you know, um, but it's an obsession. And uh, it leads to negative feelings, which can snowball out of control uh, if they're not um, uh, contained or, 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 you know what I mean, or, or um, managed correctly. Um, <laughs> another thing, so we're talking about, like uh, I said, the gratitude lists, I think, are really healthy for people. I also believe surrounding yourself with positivity, uh, people, okay, because we need people. We're social animals, and we need them for affirmation to some extent. So find those good friends and keep them near and dear. Um also, um, there's the things we put into our mind, okay? So whether it be written texts, whether it be movies that we're watching, music that we're listening to, video games that we're playing, um, there's the old quote, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Uh, that is, a, it's the three monkeys. I'm sure most of you can think about it, but you got the monkey covering his ears, the monkey covering his eyes, and then the monkey covering his mouth. That is the, the like the contemporary image of that old biblical saying, um, which is, do not listen to naysayers. Do not listen to those that spread vicious um, rumors and lies about people. So right there, everybody right now should turn off the media, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, New York Times. I don't give a shit. Throw that shit away because that shit is all poison. It doesn't matter if they're, oh, but I want to stay in tune with what's happening in the world. Well, then read a paper. Um, the reason I say that is because you don't have the face of anger that all these anchors have. And it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. I see it on both sides. And I go back once in a while because I other people are doing it all the time. Like they love the news. And I'm like, that shit is poisonous. Uh, try not to say bad things about anybody. Always, you know, sets the speak no evil. Try not to say like I was saying, and I've probably said it to you, Stephen, and I've probably said it to other people. I've probably spoken negatively uh, about my wife and, and, you know, and, and her mom and whatever, my mom, when I was a kid, and I see that now is none of it helped anybody. And if anything, it just 
poisoned my own mind, you know, and I don't, you know, I think that, you know, it's, it's awesome that I can look at myself like this. I'm really grateful for that. Also seeing no evil, watch out for those images you put into your mind um, from like over, I don't know, sex scenes to violence, you know, you're watching these images and you are what you eat. Uh, the whole concept of the eating the body, drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ is not cannibalism, people. Uh, it is consuming his word, his mission. That is the consumption that's taking place. Now we have a physical, a physical ritual that goes along with this belief because as teachers, you know, they have to do. There's kinetic learning. There's only one way. We connect to memory. Write down the notes. Don't take pictures. Pictures don't work. Writing it down is kinetic and there is connection to the brain. So that's why we have the rituals of the body of Christ, but really it's to consume his word. And the gospel means good news because even 2000 years ago, all the news was bad and poisoning the people. And so the good news gives you the tools to accept to go forward, to conquer adversity, to not feel sorry for yourself, and to put your own ego in check in service of a higher order. Whoa, sorry. Hey, wow, that was a lot. <laughs> now it was good. It was good. My favorite yeah. part, my favorite part was talking about the ego, because I felt like that was like the core of you know everything else was built onto that, right? You okay? Yeah, so I think everything was kind of like built around that. So the ego and then how it manifests and then how it creates who we are and uh, the imaginary audience. I remember reading that a long time ago. Eric Erickson is awesome. Some of these psychologists, man, that you learn in your masters of psycho uh, in in teaching, they're so relevant. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think that that's really really powerful. Man, the ego and how it manifests and like, man, I I can't agree more, man. Like. I, I have periods where I don't watch the news for months. You know, like I, I would say sometimes six months or even a year. Like I, I just definitely feel better for it. Um, definitely Absolutely. feel better for it. So I, I agree with that. And like you said, being aware of your mind and what it's doing and, and, and yeah, is it poisoning in us? That's really scary. And not everyone has that reflection of like, you know, looking back and being humble to say, well, you know, maybe I made a mistake and, and I, I think as well, man, when you have your first kid, like a lot of parents have told me this, is that your first kid is that you're naturally very protective and you want the best for that kid. And then I've heard I heard a, a father say this to me. He goes, your first kid's like, you, you're just always stressed and, you know, it's it's you're just worried about that kid dying. He's like, the second, the second kid, he's like, by the time you get to the third one, they can eat glass and you're fine, right? You just <laughs> let them do whatever they want. You're like, you don't even care anymore. <laughs> And that's that's a part of you know being a father and and you know becoming more trusting and letting go and and being a bit more chilled when they hurt themselves and it's really tough, man. Like there's nothing more upsetting than for a for a father or for a mother hearing their kids cry. You know it hurts when you hear them cry and you know what, the the ways that they cry. So like I think that's part of it's really part of being human. So we just we're protective as as a, as a species and so we should be. Um. What was I going to say? Oh, you know, I, I would maybe to end this in the sense of I wanted to know, like, I wanted to ask you, like, what's been one kind of experience that you've had the most amount of adversity that you're so grateful for? Because I can tell you mine. Um, yeah, but maybe I'll hear yours first. 
Well, like, well, I was going to say, I would love to hear yours to get an example, right? Because you're a teacher. So you got to model the behavior first, Mr. Well, Steve. Well said, my friend. <laughs> well said. I And in, I couldn't have said that better myself. So let me do that for you because um, I'm, I'm happy to do that. So for mine, actually talking about teaching was definitely becoming a teacher was the definitely, definitely the, the most amount of adversity, psychological adversity in my life. Because I had a I had a job that I worked in real estate and it just had a like a, a completely different set of skills. And then I didn't I hadn't developed the skills of being a classroom teacher. You know, like I, I went to university and I studied to become a literature teacher, did my master's in education, lots of great theory and ideas and expectations. But getting into the classroom, man, was just so hard, so overwhelming. It was just really tough. Um, and I just had to completely reinvent who I was. So yeah, I think for me, teaching was definitely the most amount of adversity because I, you know, and this is something we've spoken about a lot. It's just, it's just really tough, really challenging. It smashes your ego, um, your sense of confidence, your identity. You know, it can, it can be extremely hard to recover from getting things wrong. You see the way, you know, you see these massive holes that you have. Um, it's like a really art, like is an art and craft and teaching, and it's just really challenging. But um. Thankfully, like I stuck at it and the rewards have come uh, in abundance, right? And it's a really beautiful thing. But like I tell you, man, I had imposter syndrome. I was, I would like work on my spelling for days. Uh, I would read, read and just, you know, trying to write words like bureaucracy on the board or coerced. Like, you know, it's, if you're an English teacher, for example, and a kid says a word and then tells you to write on the board, you don't know how to write that word. It's like, that could be paralyzing. <laughs> so, um, but it was, yeah, that's definitely the, I think the, the hardest thing that I've ever done, I think, because it was the, the skills were so foreign to what I had developed in my other career. But, yeah. you know, and you have days that are horrible and you have to just keep pushing forward. But, you know, I think that if you're reflective, I think the lesson is if you're reflective and you look at, you put your ego on the side and you go, okay, like learning Spanish was really difficult for me, you know, and, and it's, but it's the same process. It's just like being humble, you know, putting your ego aside and saying, I need to become the best damn teacher that this school has ever seen. And then so, okay, what do I need to do that? What feedback am I getting from the students and what feedback am I getting from my mentors of my peers? And where am I? Where's my calibration? And and how do I do this again better and better and better? And what do I need to focus on? And that's how you overcome a imposter syndrome is to be is you literally become the person that you think you're in imposter and like you're pretending to be, right? So then then you you literally become that because you start um you embody those skills, those abilities again and again and again till you start developing competency. And then, you know, then you develop real proficiency and then you can move into some kind of mastery. But yeah, man, definitely teaching was the the most challenging. And even now, man, I have days where I feel nervous or, you know, like I'm doing a poem for the first time. Or, I don't know how this is going to go. Or, or I've got 20 kids in the last class on Friday. I'm like, ah, oh, I feel a bit nervous that I'm going to be, they're going to, they're going to kind of flip a table and I'm not going to be able to control the class. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's mine, man. So I'd love to hear yours. That's great, man. Thank you for sharing. And uh, yeah, you know, that's going to be, I'm going to have to touch on that too. But I think one of the the earlier one was where it was uh, trying to decide what was more important. So um, 
most, some of you, well, you, <laughs> and some of my friends, most of my friends and some of my colleagues actually know that I'm a high school dropout. So <laughs> bear with me, guys. I haven't been feeding you shit this whole, this whole time. I actually have studied <laughs> since then. <laughs> but dropping out of high school, and here's why I did it. Because I, I, I believed that I, the money was most important so I could buy the clothes to please the other. I could, you know, I could buy the car to make me free. Um, that money was really more important in my life. And money is important. We do need it because it's the currency of trade. And we can't all be farmers, hunters, and rocket scientists at the same time. So we do need this currency, I, I feel, or at least some sort of. Um, but dropping out of high school, you know, like really hurt me. Um, but at the same time, I was scared of not being smart enough because my sister was really smart and she was like a 4.0 student and I was more focused on getting money. And I had this fear of reading, dude, like in front of people, which obviously that ship sailed a long time ago because I'm a teacher and I will read whole text when the technology isn't working. Boom. I got the backup audio script. I'll even like use different voices for the girl and the boy. So, uh, you know, um, my fear of my own incompetence uh, amongst others. It's that ego thing. It was my imaginary audience uh, when I was young, you know? And uh, so I dropped out of high school. And then that plagued me for years to come until I made the change, the decision, right? I, I felt like I wasn't capable of doing anything because I dropped out of high school, but then I fought forward. And I started getting the little nuggets of uh, inspiration and reward from, a, you know, somehow completing a degree and getting those check marks on the list. Um, and so, yeah, the dropping out, um, but I turned it around and I told you the story about, you know, since I was a high school dropout, I had to do community college and in college, I partied a lot. So I didn't finish as soon as I had planned and I needed just one more credit uh, sorry, five more credits, one more class to finish my associate of arts degree. And then I tried to get into the best liberal arts college on the West Coast, which is Western Washington University. Um, I think it's number two, it's ranked number two on the West Coast, or it was when I was there. And it's number one in marine biology. Um, anyways, I, you know, I'm a high school dropout. And if you would, if you're getting an associate's degree, they're going to ask you why you didn't come straight to the university. Long story short, I got those questions. I was I was shy of my degree, so I didn't even have an associate of arts degree. And I traveled by car, slept in my car to fight my way into the university of choice. And I made it through perseverance. Now that's adversity. I was going to get stuck in a place I didn't want to be for one more class. You know, I might I would have had to work full time because I was kind of dependent on student loans at the time. Anyways, I went up to Bellingham, Washington. I sat, they gave me a meeting just to hear me out. I think they were just trying to be nice. Um, and at first they said, well, no, we don't know. We've never done that. No one's really ever done that. Like you either have an associate of arts degree or you have a high school with good you know, standing. 
anyways, I wrote letters on typewriters. I didn't even get to use a computer, but they offered me a typewriter and I had to write like 10 drafts before I got it perfect, you know, because we didn't have the word processing back then. And, uh, and then I just gave her my story and I shared the passion and there was no way they could say no. So I overcame that, but that was always a problem of mine. And now I'm better because I am in love with education. I will never stop learning till the day I die. And I am a teacher and I'm trying to inspire this learning because it's empowering, right? Um, uh, but another one going to teaching. So here I am as a teacher, what adversity have I faced here? Well, same thing as you, man, like this dude, it's hard. It is the hardest job I've ever done. And don't be fooled. I've done a ton of different weird jobs all over the spectrum. I mean, I've cleaned fish. I've done tours. I've done labor. I've done concrete. I've done electricity. I've done accounting. I've done food service, hotel service. Dude, it goes on and on. I've cleaned. I've cleaned toilets and residences and houses. I, I feel like I've done almost everything. Um, and then I get there feeling like I deserved respect. And these kids are kids, <laughs> and they'll shit all over you sometimes. I mean, their kids are mostly good, but they're kids, you know. And you come in there demanding their respect and oftentimes you i mean just like all humans we have to earn it right so um i've learned that it goes back to that trying to control uh, the classroom trying to control the students behaviors instead of focusing on my own and i struggled with classroom management um i always manage to do good because when i get angry and i put my fist on the desk everybody stops it just it just happens i can silence a room in a second less than that but i don't like that that's not the way you teach this is not the way you inspire people through fear that's ridiculous so as you know overcoming all that um, I've learned to just lead by modeling and I just keep, I just have woven my classes to, together qu quite nicely, very tight transitions. Um, and I always keep the needs of my students in the forefront. And again, I try to lead by modeling. So I never just, I tell them a task and then expect them to do good. I do the task myself. I present it to them and then I get it back. So I think those, it's all education, right? Has been the majority of my adversity. And then, like I said, uh, you know, especially early on in my life, you know, drinking was an adversity, just wanting to be a social magnet and like always neat, like trying to be the center, you know, like I was drinking to like have these experiences that weren't me at all. I wasn't even thinking about who I was. I was thinking about trying to impress other people and it worked, you know, I had a lot of fun, a lot of fun, um, but it also made it so I couldn't complete that associate of art degrees, which created another mountain to climb. But I, through perseverance and trust in myself, I did it. And now I have a bachelor's degree and I'm working on my master's and I'm enjoying teaching more than any job I've ever done in my entire life. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, like, I love how you talk about how you created those own, sometimes we create our own adversity, right? Because of decisions that we're maybe not aware of. And then, and then we work through it and then have to overcome it. And then we gain a sense of insight and understanding about it. So I think that's... And then sometimes we do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's to part of being young too, like of not being aware. Of, so it's kind of like, I'm doing this because it's fun. And then not being aware of it's fooled the outcomes. But as we get older, you know, I think the outcomes become a bit more obvious, but it's it's part of life, I guess, that whole process of of um, decisions and choices. And sometimes, maybe sometimes we almost sabotage ourselves, right? And then we get into a tough situation and then we have to rise above it. And then, you, and then you know, which you did, right? And you were able to 
basically go to that university and say, hey, listen, this is what I'm about. This is what my goals are. Let me let me have a crack. And they let you they let you in. And that's amazing. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, absolutely. And the good thing about adversity is that it allows us to share with other people and whether they take our stories or our advice. Um, but having gone through it, we can share with other people our experiences and say, you know, life could have been easier. I mean, I still love my life, but if you want to avoid this type of adversity, self-created adversity, maybe go a different route than I did, right? So it gives us it gives us the the ethos, first of all, the trustworthiness of having the experience, but it also gives us the insights to hope to hopefully hold a torch up for other people to help them not make the same mistakes as we made. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good uh, good point as well. Um Sometimes it's necessary and sometimes it perhaps isn't necessary. And I think the more that you know yourself and the, the more you have those goals, it's like sometimes we get distracted by um, by distractions. Sometimes we get pulled to a side because, like you said, you were maybe drinking and there was partying and there's girls and you're having a good time. But then it's kind of like, you know, the, the gratification compared to the uh, the the overall satisfaction of building something that was more important and we get distracted by that. I think the more that you know yourself and the more that you know what you want, the more that you can work towards that without the distractions, but you got to be aware of it. Right. And then it's, you can prevent some of that adversity. And then the adversity is really a part of your growing process. And I think that's really helpful because I'm, I'm very grateful for the adversity that I had, even the stuff that I didn't want. And even the stuff that I didn't ask for and the stuff that happened to me uh, in the sense I didn't choose, didn't choose it but I'm most grateful for the adversity that I had that I chose and said, okay, I want this difficult situation and I want to rise above it and do it. And then I did it and it's like, wow, that was amazing. And I'm so grateful for how I expanded as a person being able to do that because otherwise the other version of me that wouldn't have made those decisions would be very limited version of myself. That's kind of like in a bubble. And then it's, I wouldn't have developed the skills, the insight, the perspective, and the gratitude. And I, yeah, and I think the gratitude is a big part of it as well. That you got to be really grateful for who you are, what you've done, and when you're on that path of, you know, this adversity is helping me become the person I want. Then nothing can really stop you. It's just yourself. I agree, man. Absolutely. Before we wrap this up, well, I guess as a way of wrapping this up, you know, I just want to really quickly read this poem out by Bukowski. Maybe it's a good way to finish because Bukowski's poems sometimes aren't like super deep, but he's really good at expressing like uh, a feeling and an idea. And do you mind if I read this one out? Uh, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. This one's, uh, I think, it'll, it'll be a good way to wrap up. So it's called The Laughing Heart by Charles Bukowski. Your life is your life. Don't let it be clubbed into dank submission. Be on the watch. There are ways out. There is a light somewhere. It may not be much light, but it beats the darkness. Be on the watch. The gods will offer you chances. Know them. Take them. You can't beat death, but you can beat death in life. Sometimes... And the more often you learn to do it, the more light there will be. Your life is your life. Know it while you have it. You are marvelous. The gods wait to delight in you. Your life is your life, John. Make the most of it, bro. Yep, buddy. Got it. 
<laughs> I, I hear you. And, every, you know, that's the one truth is that it is our own life. And oftentimes we we forget to look at what we truly want and in the fact that we are actually in control, right? Like Henley said, I am the master of my soul. You know, I am the captain, captain of my, of my soul. Yep. And, uh, and that, yeah. What is it? The captain of my ship, the master of my soul. And uh, I, I, that's the truth is like, we're going to point fingers and that's okay. That happens. It's probably natural because we don't want to accept all the blame. Sometimes it's hard, but uh, there's going to be a lot of beating as Rocky told us. And Bukowski just told us going to be a lot of bludgeoning um, as Henley said. Um, but it's what you do. It's how you stand up, how hard you can get hit and keep going forward um, for the betterment. So, you know, I think that looking at ourselves, um, learning how to self-reflect is probably one of the most important takeaways of this podcast is dealing with adversity, but don't always seeing the bad in it. Try to look at how we can learn from it. Right. And help others with, with our experiences with it. Yeah. And, and that's well said. And, and it's, it's your life is your life. It, and it also to me means that it's your, it's your path, you know, it's, it's your journey and you gotta, you gotta do it on your own. And no one could have told you otherwise how to live your life, John. I think, you know, and same with me, it's, we're in this situation. You are that you're a product of that environment. You got to live your life and, and figure it out and, and walk your journey and, and try to make the best decisions you can. And I think as you said it, man, if you're reflective, and then hopefully you make adjustments on the way, take a bit more responsibility, keep building in the in the direction that gives you the most amount of happiness, and then you can build a really purposeful, meaningful life, and and you know hopefully continue continue to be uh, grateful and and appreciate being alive, man, because it's a temporary experience, one way or the other. That's right, buddy. That's right. Yeah, cool, man. Well, man, it's been a great talk. I appreciate everything. I love the poetry. Poetry always, it seems like a really wonderful uh, foundation to build these conversations upon. So I appreciate your time, Stephen. It's always a pleasure. Can't wait to sit down face to face one day uh, so I can run my fingers through that lovely beard <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> have, a, have a meal with you, dude. Yeah, man, definitely. Yeah, I enjoyed it really thoroughly as well. And um, one day we're going to get ourselves out, out your way, but yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed the, the chat, man. So did I, hopefully some people found it useful and it was in, and if they don't, that's okay. It was a, a great conversation, uh, for me to share some ideas, man, the power of ideas. It's, it's nice. So yeah, man, thanks for coming and, and have a great day. Likewise, brother over and out. Ciao, man.